Hey Jay, I know there are X-Men animes, but are there X-Men manga? There sure are, Miles. There's an older miniseries that's basically cartoon stories in a more manga art style. Oh, and then there's the manga-verse stuff, and there's a Wolverine standalone. Wait, is that the high school one? Uh, yeah, Prodigal Son. No teenager has a right to sideburns like that. But what's the manga-verse? Okay, so the manga-verse is a manga-inflected shared Marvel universe. There were a bunch of intersecting titles, including two X-Men series and a handful of one-shots. Was Wolverine a teenager in that one, too? Nah, he was actually on the older end. Oh, that's a relief. But he might have been a Summers brother. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 135 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to us, to recording in our usual studio uh, right outside of Portland. Yeah, from a miasma of existential despair. Uh, also from Las Vegas, which uh, I guess could be described that way sometimes. Oh, no, no, I'm but... a, we're recording from a miasma of existential despair. Las Vegas was before the election. Yeah, well, uh, but what we have right now is something nice and lighthearted, which I feel great about, which is more cross-time caper, more Excalibur. So let's do a brief recap both of Excalibur in general, but also the cross-time caper so far. On the team currently are Captain Britain, Megan, Phoenix, that's Rachel Summers' Phoenix, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Lockheed. Lockheed is Kitty's little dragon friend. There's also a great big dragon friend that's running around with them that lives in their train. We've got Widget, who is right now a disembodied robot head whose nature is unknown. We will eventually find out that it is basically possessed by a version of Kitty, Kate Pride, from the Earth Hit 11 future. But that one's really complicated. And Professor Alistair Stewart of the Weird Happenings Organization, who is the hypotenuse of one of Excalibur's two ongoing love triangles. Now, as for why Excalibur is cross-time capering about the multiverse, they had been fighting a Nazi version of their own team who had come through one of Widget's accidental, on purpose, hard to say, portals, and at the end of that fight, Nazi Moira McTaggart threw a grenade, activating Phoenix's powers, who activated Widget's powers by doing so, who teleported the train into the multiverse. They've been running around from universe to universe ever since. So far, we've seen them land in a modern semi-medieval world where Kitty almost had to marry a prince, a world of perpetual superhero fights created by the impossible man, and a bunch of other random universes that we saw snippets of between scenes of a TechNet adventure. When we last saw them, they had just landed in the remains of a nearly destroyed world. But we're not going to see how that resolves. We're never going to see how that resolves. It's true. It's kind of inconsistent, but inconsistent in a way I feel okay about. Now, you may be wondering, as I wondered for a long time, why is this called the cross-time caper if they're not really traveling through time, they're just traveling across dimensions? Well, thankfully, in one of the issues we're going to be covering, we get a narrative quote about exactly that. Cross-time. Where you go when you cut sideways across the sidereal string, instead of following each dimension up or down its individual temporal stream. No past or future here, merely an infinite array of alternate nows. Now, it could be argued that that's really just an excuse for why they used a cool-sounding title for something it didn't describe. I mean, look, alliteration is important, man. I'm going to completely agree with that. Once again, if you're an X-Men fan... Don't you mean completely concur? I completely concur. I wonder if I could do alliteration for the rest of an episode. I totally couldn't. But anyway, if you're an X-Men fan, you kind of have to get used to things that are done just because they're cool. Like, they don't necessarily make sense, but that's okay. But anyway, we have Excalibur. Now, as you recall, we talked about at the very end of our last Excalibur episode that we were going to go into a cool John Carter of Mars riff in this part, and boy howdy, we sure are. Complete with 
a glorious Frank Frazetta riff on the cover with Nightcrawler as a barbarian king and a very reluctant Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers as his attendant damsels. Now, maybe we should talk a little bit about both Frank Frazetta's style and about John Carter of Mars in general, because not everybody's familiar with that. Basically, it's like Mars, but everyone's sexy and no one wears pants. Kind of. It's like a sort of barbarian space opera, science fiction-ish series of stories. Have by... you re- have you read any of them? I feel kind of guilty. I haven't. Like, barbarian fantasy is not my genre, so I've basically read a ton of Robert E. Howard because work and very little else. I've only read a little John Carter, but it's a great deal of fun. Now, flash fact, in the original stories on Mars, nobody wears any clothes at all. In the Frank Rosetta covers and the various comics that have come out more recently and stuff like that, they just wear weird, skimpy, barbarian, future-looking stuff. Question. We're going to have a frame story in this where we find out that the entire story is being told by a narrator to a group of aliens. Should we assume that the clothing was added by that narrator? Oh, yeah, it could be sort of censorship because maybe the narrator was uncomfortable talking about people's junk just, you know, flopping about during fight scenes. In the Martian breeze. In the Martian breeze. Although I think they're technically on an alternate Earth, but. Yeah, well, that's that's true. In fact, you know, that's because that's what cross time means is you go to another Earth. Clearly. Sometimes. Yes. In space. But anyway, as you mentioned, we do indeed have a frame story because despite the fact that the last issue of Excalibur ended with our heroes and their trains smashed to pieces on a barren wasteland half buried under the wreckage of the train itself on a cliffhanger, this one opens with the lady in a hooded cloak telling a story in a really cool space bar to a bunch of aliens. We are not supposed to know who this narrator is, and in fact, we don't. It's clearly someone who has been privy to the adventures of Excalibur, And based on what we ultimately learn about who it is, I think it's worth considering from the start of the story that this narrator may not be the most reliable. That's true. I mean, you know, like you said, uh, she probably talks about people having clothes who in reality didn't. Well, there's that. And, you know, her perspective on the events is shaded by her own biases and preferences. And so it's worth considering this is not only a rollicking adventure story, but a rollicking adventure story that is subject to dramatic editing. Beyond, you know, that of the author. What's that line from the Tick Live Action series? I'm not making it up. I'm making it good. I mean, you know, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it wasn't true. That one's from The Things They Carried, which is very different than The Tick. I'm sure there's a quote from Big Fish that would be relevant, but I forgot to look one up before we came to record. You know, I saw a flyer that some high school uh, in our town or in one of the towns nearby is doing a performance of Big Fish, which would be a really awesome high school play. Think about it. Yeah, it really would. I agree. I want to be in high school so I can do that play. No, I really don't want to be in high school. Uh, We could go see it. We could totally go see it. But anyway, so yes, the bar that the story is being told in is awesome, and I totally want to go to there. Like, the taps over the cool round bar are like these brightly colored crystal tubes hanging from the ceiling, and they look really appetizing, and I want to drink all that booze right now. You just literally want to eat anything that's neon. I mean, kind of, yeah. This is why we have to be very careful about which bath products we buy. I'm just saying, some of them look so tasty. And you know, like chapstick, like lip balm and chapstick and stuff with the bright colors, they smell like fruit. Why don't they taste like fruit? They just taste like wax and sadness. Wax and sadness, the Miles Stokes story. Basically that. But anyway, so this isn't the first framing story we've seen in the last couple issues of Excalibur, because as you may recall, number 15, the last issue we covered, had the framing story of a TechNet sort of caper adventure with just little bits of Excalibur in the background. And this, I gotta say, is really a book and really a storyline that lends itself to that, to not seeing how all the different pieces connect and then instead just reveling in the bizarreness of it all. Yeah, I mean, this is basically the closest Excalibur is going to come to just picaresque adventures. That kind of serialized taking off, it doesn't matter if it makes sense, it matters if it's good, story 
And I love that, actually. I, that's something that I think people complain about with regards to the cross time caper. And it's one of my favorite aspects of the crossover. It's there to be lighthearted and adventurous and to play in genre without a ton of attention to continuity and even to internal continuity. And, you know, it's an experiment and it's a game and it's a lark. And I really love it for what it is. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I do think that once Alan Davis stops being the artist, then we start seeing some problems. But for now, at this very point in the story, so good. Yeah. I mean, we've talked before about the extent to which the quality of Claremont's work is mediated by his relationship to the artist and by the degree of synergy that they're able to establish. The Claremont of the Demon Bear Saga, the first Wolverine miniseries, and early Excalibur are three very, very, very different authorial voices. And they're ones that are very, very much in relation to and suited to the art. You know, comics is a collaborative medium. This is how it should work. And in this case, Alan Davis's brilliance with that madcap, cartoonish, almost overload is what carries the story. And it's what sets its tone, which in turn is what sets the narrative precedence and considerations. Now, speaking of the narrative itself, Jay, what is our mysterious hooded narrator telling to all these aliens? What's the story? So a pirate walks into a bar. No, entirely, he doesn't. No, into, no, no. We're, we're not doing this one. We're not doing this one. So a pirate on a giant floating ship is surprised when Nightcrawler falls out of the sky, whopping her on the back of the head. Right, because the scene we open up into at the beginning of this story within a story is this giant fuck-all space pirate battle with these giant science fiction-y looking skiffs like boarding one another. And there are princesses and there are guards and there are pirates and there's stars in the background and it's really great. It's basically thoroughly throws of the Dave Cockrum Nightcrawler miniseries. It's exactly that sensibility, but with Davis's amped up buoyancy. And oh my God, it's delightful. And so it quickly becomes clear that there are two factions. There are the, you know, uh, Caucasian human colored people who are scantily clad. They appear to be some sort of royalty or something like that. I feel the need to qualify here that when we say Caucasian human colored, we are not attempting to imply that all humans are Caucasian, merely that the only people in this scene whose coloration aligns to extant humans are Caucasian. Exactly. Or, you know, the this universe equivalent thereof. And then there are a bunch of blue-skinned pirates who are attacking them from another ship. And so, yeah, they're having a big fight. And like you said, Jay, Nightcrawler just falls out of the sky onto the blue pirate lady who's about to execute the not-blue princess lady. Right. These are respectively Kimri, who is the pirate captain, and Anjuli, who is the princess. Nightcrawler manages to take out most of the blue pirates. He tries to talk them down first to no avail, but as a dude who can wield three swords expertly at the same time, which he does, he makes fairly short work of the crew. He buckles all of their swashes but good. That's not what that means. Yes, it is. It totally is. No. And so Kimri confronts him and he disarms her while being his usual charming Kurt Wagner self. If I might introduce myself, Kurt Wagner by name, also known as Nightcrawler. I'm a stranger here who'd much rather be romancing a lovely lady than dueling her. That is a terrible pickup line and a really good way to get stabbed. Well, he doesn't get stabbed because instead he gets whomped on the back of the head by, as it turns out, the princess he just rescued. See, and that's why you always go for the blue chick. That's what I've learned in my years on this planet. No, that's why you assess the situation instead of immediately trying to play out your pirate fantasies in the middle of someone else's geopolitical conflict. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's a lot of what Nightcrawler does right there. It's just that it usually works out better for him. Yeah, well. <laughs> That's so, the perks of being a protagonist. So anyway, now Nightcrawler is unconscious. Meanwhile, 
Kitty and Rachel are somewhere else entirely. They are hanging by their feet in a smokehouse next to a bunch of, you know, random animal-slash-alien-animal carcasses. That's not good. No, it's really not, but I do like the way the coloration's handled here. It's basically all black and white to sort of get the smoke effect across, except for little bits of color here and there whenever anybody is able to kind of break free of the situation and background, which is a nice little way of having the visuals and the narrative support one another. Now, normally this would be no problem for them. Kitty can phase Rachel's telekinetic, but alas, neither of them has access to her powers. Thankfully, what Kitty does have is access to demon ninja training from the old Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries that's only occasionally referenced. Allowing her to wriggle out of her boots and land with a thud on the ground. Alas, for Rachel, this would be a trickier option, as she says. Good for you, but my boots sort of go all the way up to my neck. Bet I could do it regardless, except I'd probably be too embarrassed. I really enjoy Rachel and Kitty's dynamic consistently. I mean, we do know that they are canonically totally into each other, and our new t-shirt gets that across, and you should totally buy it. Oh, come on, Miles. They're gal pals palling around like gals do. But that's the thing. Like, even all of the romance aside, all of the sexual tension aside, their friendship is just so much fun, and it's really on full display in this arc. Yeah. Man, there's this essay that Sigrid Ellis wrote about this, about actually specifically this dynamic and the subtext in it. And finding, like, having a lot of trouble recognizing herself as queer because she saw this relationship and was told, oh no, friendship. And it was such a cool friendship and it was such a cool relationship. And like, it was this really aspirational, I want a friendship like that, exactly like that. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, yeah. But no, they're fantastic. I really love these two. Now, they don't have much time to be fantastic because suddenly a four-armed, red-skinned, alien-looking cook bursts in who wants to, you know, cook them. You know, you say they don't have a lot of time to be fantastic, but what they then proceed to do is kick his ass entirely without superpowers because Kitty, as she stated previously, is a demon ninja and Rachel is pretty badass herself. No sooner have they taken down the cook than Kitty and Rachel find themselves surrounded by the warriors, at which point our mysterious narrator does her best to cut to Nightcrawler to the consternation of her audience. And so she says, okay, fine, let me give you the quick version of how the thing with Kitty and Rachel resolves and does. Starring a mysterious narrator as Chris Claremont and the audience as the readers. So it turns out that nobody liked the cook, and so Rachel and Kitty became official warriors in this big dramatic ceremony that involves a lot of dancing around a fire, and they were given new, uh, well, drafty, kind of skimpy, but only Kitty minds, outfits and a dragon companion, and they went off to find their friends. I think it's worth pointing out here that their outfits are very much in line with what we've seen as the warrior uniforms of this culture. These are not women who are being put in chainmail bikinis while the dudes are in full plate. They are, in fact, wearing somewhat more than their male counterparts. And I hadn't noticed this before, but the costume that Rachel's put in, the armor that she's in, reminds me a lot of some of the motifs and shapes in Ilyana and Emma's costumes from the Phoenix Five. You know, yeah, it's kind of got a similar feel. It's true. But I really enjoy that this part of the narration is just so compressed because the narrator is so frustrated at having to change the pace of her story. And so we don't get any of the details. We don't get any of, you know, the steps from A to B to C. It's good stuff. Yeah, this is a narrator telling the parts of the story that she thinks are relevant. And finally, having established the next step in Kitty and Rachel's voyage, she gets to cut where she wanted to go, which was to Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler comes to submersed in a hot tub. And I'd like to take this moment to point out that you should never, ever, ever, ever put an unconscious person in a hot tub or leave them in a hot tub. That's a bad idea. It truly Don't is. Don't do that. Only supervillains do that, as we establish here. 
So we already know that Anjulie, the princess, is not what she seems. I mean, she was the one that whomped Nightcrawler in the back of the head, but he didn't see that. He doesn't know that. So when she walks into the hot tub and sort of sinks out of her dress and then pulls Nightcrawler down and then rises up in a passionate kiss. Oh, man. Okay, so young Miles, without going into too much detail, definitely read this scene a lot. It was very influential. Did you alternate between this scene and that one scene from Ghostbusters? Uh, You know, the version of Ghostbusters I watched when I was a kid was taped off the television. And the scene you're referring to where there's this sort of uh, like poltergeisty blowjob in Ray's dream, that was not in the TV edit. So I didn't even know that was a scene in Ghostbusters until like 10 years later when I finally saw a version that I rented from somewhere. Did it retroactively blow your previously tiny mind? I think it kind of did. Yeah. So while they're snogging in the hot tub. I love that word, snogging. Nightcrawler gets a glimpse of Anjuli's true character. A servant brings them wine and spills a drop on her wrist. Nightcrawler manages to play it off as no big deal, but the servant is clearly petrified and Anjuli is clearly a lot angrier than she's telling Nightcrawler. And we get another audience interruption as Nightcrawler kisses the drop of wine away from Anjuli's hand. What kind of story is this? No more mush stuff. We want adventure. Man, Fred Savage grew up weird and, like, with a lot of eyes. (laughs) Right? And teeth. Now, as all of this is going on, what about some of the other characters? What about Alistair Stewart of the Weird Happenings organization? Oh, poor hapless Alistair Stewart. Alistair Stewart is being chased through the, uh... I was going to say Cyclopean ruins just because I'm in barbarian fiction mode, but they're not really very Cyclopean. He's being chased through the ornate ruins by a bunch of sword-wielding spacefarers. There's one of the red dudes, like the chef that we saw before, and a bunch of folks with various numbers of swords and arms and configurations. And we learn from them that they are chasing him on behalf of a princess who has asked that he be brought back intact. However, they're not able to complete their search and potentially destroy mission because they're confronted by Rachel, Kitty, and the big humanoid dragon. And I love their body language here. Like, Rachel is all badass with her feet planted and her posture open, and Kitty is just sort of embarrassedly holding her cape in front of her with one hand the whole time. The dragon, incidentally, and I think we've learned this at this point or will shortly hereafter, is this world's equivalent of Lockheed, Kitty's little dragon friend. And And it kind of makes it extra weird that she's checking him out a lot. You know, it's just like how Supergirl was dating her horse that one time. Well, we know that Lockheed had a crush on Kitty already from Liana's fairy tale. It's true. There's a lot going on here. And the alien enjoys the violent part of what's going on. This is the same alien that didn't want the mush stuff. The Princess Bride era Fred Savage. I thought we were just calling this Fred Savage. Well, Fred Savage says, Slash, rip, blood, gore, big fight, great stuff. Afraid not, responds our hapless narrator. Because as it turns out, Our heroes are able to scare off the marauding aliens and rescue Alistair Stewart until a spaceship descends from the skies and a bunch of tentacles come down and grab them all up. You know, Alan Davis draws really good tentacles. Alan Davis draws really good everything. But seriously, I think he draws the best tentacles in the Marvel Universe. So sort of like John Bogdanov draws the best hugs? Right. Like, if you're an artist in the Marvel Universe, you should be known uh, for drawing the best something. Hugs, tentacles, you know, whatever. Demon bears. Yeah, although Alan Davis also has the best hair in the Marvel Universe. Is that unfair? And the best smiles. And the best physical comedy. Alan Davis is a really good artist, Miles. I feel like we might be setting an unfair standard here. I kind of want to eat his brains and gain his powers. Uncool, bro. Okay, Alan Davis, you can keep your brains. Just keep drawing awesome hair and tentacles and stuff. Man, now we're never going to get him on the show. (laughs) Huh, I remember this show. This was the one that was trying to eat my brains. We won't actually do that, we promise. We promise. It's also really hard to do over Skype. I'm not saying you can't eat brains over Skype, but I can't. 
So, you know, something to work on for the future. Anyway, so back to Nightcrawler. He wakes up in the middle of the night and sees that Anjali is talking to a hooded, blue-skinned guard who's sort of got this scabrous skin and a big mask over his face. He sneaks out to follow Anjali and discovers the servant from before, the one who spilled her wine, likewise horribly, horribly altered and in a prison near which Kimri, the pirate queen from earlier, is likewise imprisoned. Now, Kimri's dressed more like a princess herself, and she actually explains to Kurt what's going on. It turns out this kingdom belonged to hers, belonged to Kimri, not Anjali. Well, it belonged to her family. She was the princess of this kingdom, and Anjali seduced and then murdered Kimri's father, took over the kingdom, and decided that she was going to kill Kimri to take care of any succession issues. So now that Kurt realizes that he's totally been played by a sexy lady, as happens with Nightcrawler sometimes. Played by a sexy lady. The Kurt Wagner and also frequently Alex Summers story. So they get some new gear for Nightcrawler. He's just been in this sort of sensual lounge tunic. And so he gets his own sexy barbarian gear. Was his sensual lounge tunic velour? I'd like to think that it was. I'm going to assume it was a velour sensual lounge tunic. But now he's properly kitted up as a sexy barbarian with his tiny loincloth and big spalders and thus properly equipped for an adventure. He heads off to take down the tyrant, restore Kimri to her throne, and generally protagonist the fuck out of this story. And what he finds is, you remember that big green tentacle stuff from before? He sees Anjali sort of controlling it, and inside the tentacle monster are most of his friends. Whoops. And he attacks because, you know, now he knows what side is right and what side is wrong, and he buckles some more swashes. Anjali's pretty pissed off, though. Nightcrawler, how can you betray me so? In this instance, which it's as easy as breathing. I mean, it's probably logistically slightly more difficult. Yeah, but more fun, at least. Now, a big brawl breaks out. Kimri slays the hooded guard, only to discover that it is, in fact, her brainwashed and mutilated father. Oh, that's really awkward and sad. Yeah, but they just sort of gloss over it. There's a panel where it's a little bit sad, and then everything just sort of goes on as usual. Well, I guess she already mourned him. I mean, she thought he was dead, so... Why mourn him again? Kitty either knocks out or murders Anjali. It kind of looks like she kills her. I'm pretty sure Kitty does in fact kill her because Anjali is about to kill Kimri. But even with Anjali out of the way, they still got the monster to deal with. And Kurt, being the observant fellow he is, notices that it is enthusiastically trying to devour everyone except for Rachel. And so he grabs Phoenix and throws her into the monster. And as he does, well, clearly something happens. Because it explodes into a giant phoenix raptor, and you could see it from space, and it's really impressive. Excalibur's approach to combat from very early on has basically been throw phoenix at the problem. Rarely has it been quite so literal. Now, this is the end of the first issue, and so it's also a break in the narrator's story, and I love the way this works right here. Well, the first issue of this arc, the cross-time caper has been underway for some time. But the narrator informs her audience and her larger, you know, literary audience. The story's far from ended, gentle audience. When you return after a brief intermission, I'll tell you what happened next. But she wouldn't tell Miles because this was the last Excalibur issue in my father's collection. And it was years before I was able to read the issue that came after it, so I had no idea what happened next for ages. They all died, Miles. They all died on fake Mars. Oh, that would be unfortunate. Nah, I'm just fucking with you. Aww. They're good. Dude, this cross-time caper's hardly even halfway over. You're an unreliable narrator, too. I thought we'd established that pretty firmly. I suppose we have. Now, the next issue, so we always got to talk about covers with Excalibur, right? And this one is also a ton of fun. Right. This one is a beauty pageant featuring a bunch of weird-looking alien Captain Britons, the one on the front, telling the judges, I hope to travel, help children, and work for world peace. 
And of course, Excalibur's in the background holding up their number cards. It's pretty great. Now, Davis draws this. Davis draws the issue. And this was actually the last issue of Alan Davis's regular run as an artist on Excalibur. No! Do not want. I know. I know. It's really sad. And I looked up a quote. And apparently the reason he left the book at this point, although he will come back later, was that he was too good for this fallen world. Well, that was one reason. And the other reason is that they'd been coming up against deadline every single month and Davis felt like he was having to rush his work and the quality of it was suffering. Now, as somebody who has, you know, seen all of his Excalibur issues, I mean, I don't think so. I think it's still really excellent. But apparently he was his own harshest critic, as we so often are. Yeah, I was going to say Alan Davis's rushed below par work is still better than 99% of professional comics artists best stuff. He may not have been up to his standards, but damn it. I know. And in fact, the issue opens with something Alan Davis draws very well, which is a big celebration because it turned out they didn't die. They were all okay. Phoenix did indeed defeat the monster. They've all paired off in various combinations. You know, Megan is with Captain Britain, who's very, very impressed with her. Nightcrawler is busy checking out Alistair Stewart's legs. Yeah, Alistair Stewart is basically step dancing in a loincloth. He's dancing in his coat and tie, very neat knee socks and shoes, and a belt and strategically placed large leaf. Kimri, meanwhile, decides that Nightcrawler's got the right idea as far as career options, and she would far rather be a pirate than a princess, a sentiment which she underlines by pinching Captain Britain's butt. Much to Megan's annoyance. I enjoy how, like, playfully flirtatious everybody is in Excalibur. Oh yeah, man, Excalibur's just like one big ongoing weird orgy. Now, somebody who's not enjoying, you know, flirtation or wearing leaves over their genitals or whatever is Rachel. I mean, she might. You don't know what she's wearing over her genitals. They're not visible under her costume. That's true. I I don't want to make any assumptions. So the team still doesn't have their powers. I mean, there was the big Phoenix flare when she was thrown at the monster, but that was it. And it's kind of nice for her not to hear everybody's voices in her head. So she just heads off to do her own thing. And what Rachel does at this point is actually head off for several months. She finds her way to the farm that's run by Jean Grey, who on this planet is a Zoftig middle-aged farmer with a really cool white streak in her hair and an absolutely goddamn unintelligible phonetic accent. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. You really want to do this, Miles? Yes, I do. I believe in you. Too used to letting them do the work, you ask me. Being aware every little thought don't give you the insight to know what they mean or how to cope. Made life too blessed easy for ye. That's actually not that bad. Well, that bit's not. There are bits where it becomes more impregnable. But she basically tells Rachel, yeah, sure, come live with me, come work on the farm. And they are living in a bucolic bliss when, alas, an outing is upset by a group of slavers. Complete with their own black and spike-wearing hounds. You know, like hounds from Earth 811, Days of Future Past, that Rachel Summers herself used to be? Yeah, them. Now, and Julie had managed to keep these guys under control by basically fear. Everyone was terrified of her. Now they're starting to reemerge, and they capture Rachel and kill Jean. It's really sad, and Rachel refers to her as Mama as she's killed and says not again, and I definitely teared up a little. Now, one of the slavers is a guy who you might have seen before if you read the most recent Nightcrawler ongoing series. This is Tullamore Vogue, or Tullamore Vogue. I'm never quite sure how to say his name. I think Vogue? I don't know. I have no idea. Well, regardless, he's this sort of uh, very large, blue, mustachioed alien dude, And yeah, he showed up a couple times, like you said, both in the Nightcrawler ongoing and also in Claremont's, I believe, early 2000s run. He was a thing. Now, he's got an alien name, but all of his cohorts, despite being of the same species, all have very proper British names. So we've got a Reg and a Cyril. Later on, we'll learn that one of them is this universe's Nigel Frobisher. So even though Rachel does manage to fight her way out in a great 
torn clothes, mismatched cutlasses, super buff panel. She does manage to escape, but apparently these blue aliens have sent an assassin to where the rest of Excalibur is, so let's talk about that. Excalibur has decided that this world needs a champion. They have no Captain Britain, and obviously that's what they're missing and what will fix things. So Excalibur has decided that the best possible solution to this is to hold a grand tourney. Now, Captain Britain's sort of self-conscious about the whole thing. I'm really sorry. I have no idea whether this is the proper thing to do. We're just sort of making things up as we go along. Oh, Lord, I feel like such a pompous twit. It's what you do best, my love. Oh, snap. Well, anyway... Our hope is a fate will sort of reach up and grab the lucky devil by the throat. Same as she did with me. Uh, Failing that, may the best entity win. Excalibur is so well-meaning. Specifically, Captain Britain is so well-meaning. And yet, you know, I think maybe he shouldn't be in charge of things. Alternately, Excalibur should be in charge of everything. Well, that may be true. At least as long as they're drawn by Alan Davis. And in fact, this tourney does end up being pretty great. We see little bits and pieces of the various challenges. I think my favorite is watching a confused-looking Yeti trying to cram a square peg into a round hole. Now, there are three competitors who have consistently dominated the competition. Those are Lockheed, or the large anthropomorphic version of Lockheed, Kimri, and a scantily clad masked, mysterious competitor whom Kitty quietly recognizes as Rachel wearing a bunch of bondage gear. Right, because she sees Rachel fighting with moves that she learned from Kitty. No one has their powers, but Megan is thriving in this world. She loves it. She's really happy. She's reflecting her environment. And this is a place where magic has different expressions and different connotations. And she's really liking it. Remember, they've been here for a few months at this point, sort of living peacefully. And Brian is just starstruck at how beautiful Megan is. I've never seen you more lovely. I'm but a reflection of this world, my Lionheart. All its beauty and passion and life so long enchained, desperately yearning for release through me. Their relationship, I gotta say, I know we talk about how dysfunctional it can be, but when it works, it really works. They clearly do care a great deal about each other, have a lot of passion and true connection, you know? Alas for our happy lovers, there's bad news. The tournament has been infiltrated by an assassin, and it appears that that assassin has been caught. We see a four-armed red guy, again similar to the cook, fighting with the masked woman whom we know is Rachel, saying that he caught her attempting to kill Kitty. And in fact, Kitty, Captain Britain, Nightcrawler, Little Lockheed, they're all down. They appear to all be either dead or severely injured. They have no respiration and no heartbeats and no brain function. Which isn't red as dead for some reason. It's red as sort of their nervous systems just being fried and on pause. But regardless, as Lockheed charges in, the four-armed guy who it turns out is the real assassin, surprise, surprise, just runs Alistair Stewart through. Like, right in the organs. He needs those. Right, he uses them for, you know, fluids and stuff. They're where he keeps his being alive. Exactly. You know why they call it the liver? Because you gotta have a liver to live. That's just science. That's etymology. It's from Latin, I'm assuming. You're full of lies. Nope, nope, all true. I'm just an unreliable narrator. Yeah, because you're full of lies. Well, so the assassin-looking lady who, as we noticed, is in fact Rachel Summers, throws her cutlass through the real assassin's head, killing him. The world uses its connection to Megan to address Rachel directly and tell her what she can do to fix it. The power exists. That is immutable fact. All thou canst do is deny thy responsibility to seek solace in pretense. But lies are always found out. And the only way to truly deal with fear is to confront it. That choice, Rachel, Phoenix, is thine. Back in the bar, our storyteller seems about to leave her audience at a cliffhanger 
with most of the party dead, but then she throws back her hood and reveals that she is in fact Kitty and everyone lived happily ever after, or at least happily ever after for long enough to go to a bar and tell some stories. And Kurt, who shows up at this point, is very pleased at the entire prospect and reminiscent. I was just remembering the wide-eyed slip of a girl who bounced into Professor Xavier's school not so long ago, announcing, I'm here, as if she owned the place. I'm glad you came, Kostjan, and that you stuck around. And then they jaunt out of the world, just in time to miss Xavier and the Starjammers, who were right outside. So I guess they just moved through space, not cross time this time. Apparently they were in Earth 616 the whole time, and if they hadn't jaunted away, they would have been home. Aww. Alternately, it might be a pocket dimension that also existed within 616 space. We're going to see more of the ways that some of these dimensions are cross-connected, in fact, in the next when they head to. And so, yes, the next one they head to. Okay, so we mentioned that this was Alan Davis's last uh, stint as a regular artist on Excalibur, and that is evident. This next one is rough. This issue disappoints me deeply on a number of levels. It's drawn by Dennis Jensen, who tries. But more than that, the next world they're on should be the best world. It should be the greatest world of all time. I could have made this world perfect. This world could have been amazing. It's a speed racer with. But the thing is, they don't do anything with that. Instead, they reference an entirely different anime. Well, and they they handle it poorly and the pacing is weird. And basically, look, there are so many things you can do with a speed racer world. There are so many things and it could have been so awesome. And I'm so actively, deeply, profoundly angry and disappointed that it's not. Come on. For serious. Well, what does happen is that Megan wakes up, but she's got Rachel's red mullet, and Rachel's in bed with Megan's hair, and they're both encased in fiery energy as they're sleeping on the train, going through, you know, cross-time space, etc. Rachel's in bed with Megan's hair has very different visual implications, at least for me, than what you're actually describing. I'm just sort of imagining her holding it like a teddy bear. Well, that too. But anyway, Rachel wakes up and freaks out, and because when Rachel freaks out, telekinesis goes everywhere, the train nearly space derails and crashes into a new world— almost squishing a very familiar face who's driving on that world in a race car. This is Playboy and race car driver Jamie Braddock, and Megan is thrown from the train and into his passenger seat. Now, as a recap, Jamie Braddock is the older brother of Psylocke and Captain Britain. He was a, you know, shiny, happy philanthropist, race car driver, financial guy, until he got into some gambling debts and started doing terrible, terrible, terrible things. And he disappeared for long periods of time. Actually, 616 Jamie Braddock is basically Evil Racer X. We'll see. There's more Speed Racer stuff right Except there. Except he doesn't wear a mask. So he's Evil Rex Racer. He wears a mustache. That's different. It's like a tiny mask for your upper lip. Thank you, Dan McNinja. <laughs> well, there you go. So Captain Britain freaks out because, you know, Jamie Braddock, he knows that his brother is evil. And Rachel, who still dazed, stumbles out of the train into the path of a bunch of oncoming race cars. Barely rescued by Kurt and Lockheed. Captain Britain is baffled as to why there would be so many cars in the desert, because he has clearly not seen Speed Racer, which is an amazing cartoon, where basically the entire world is built and organized around car racing in weird and hostile environments, and it's fantastic, and you should all go watch it. I think it's on either Netflix or Hulu. And it is the predecessor to the objectively greatest movie of all time. So the Speed Racer movie is, in fact, freaking amazing. It's and true. I will fight for its honor. Now, Captain Britain flies after the way out of it, Megan and Jamie Braddock. Rachel is taken back into the train because she's not doing so hot either. And Kitty just sort of feels helpless. They're waiting for Rachel to wake up. She's not sure what to do. The train's totally busted. So she just starts watching TV and realizes all there is on TV, seemingly all there is in this entire world is racing. Go speed racer, go speed racer, go speed racer, go! 
Kitty decides to go outside to mope and possibly cause fatal collisions by just hanging out phased in the middle of what appears to be the raceway. And she finds the remains of a famous vehicle called ORZ-1. This is a car she saw on a documentary in one of the shows she was watching. Apparently, it was the first car capable of matching Jamie Braddock's. And it mysteriously crashed, and the driver and designer was killed. Also bringing you five hours of modern rock and roll classic hits only on ORZ-1. <laughs> is this going to be a thing now? Are you just all of the radio announcers? All of the radio announcers on ORZ1, the coolest place in town, bringing you rock and roll, the coolest, the baddest, and the best. <laughs> well, there you have it. Sorry, I'm much better at ZZ105. So Widget, who's hanging out with Kitty, just sort of eats the wreck. He eats the car and turns into a shiny silver race car himself. Sure, why not? Sure, why not is kind of how this entire story works. I mean, sure, why not is kind of how Widget works, too. I guess that's true also. And so she figures, well, now we've got some wheels, I should go try to rescue our missing friends, when Nightcrawler shows up and says no. Nightcrawler wants to take the car and go out himself so Kitty can stay safe. The car has different priorities and basically says it's not going anywhere if Kitty's not driving. This is weird because Nightcrawler totally respects Kitty Pride as an ally and as an equal. And that whole like, oh, you stay here, you need to be safe thing that some heroes do, he would never do. Now... I would have different concerns about Kitty driving right now. Her natural state is phased. She disrupts electronics. She disrupts some machinery in that state. And she can only stay tangible with fierce concentration. I would not pick her to operate a motor vehicle. But even so, the characters are just getting more and more out of character. And I think that's deliberate. I think that's uh, going to be a product of, you know, the nature of this world as we find out more about it. But that's really not clear. And so it just comes off as sloppy. So as Kitty drives through the landscape, the art gets weirder and weirder, too. Her eyes are getting larger. Her mouth is getting smaller. Figures are getting more cartoonish and exaggerated. And it ends up in sort of anime of 1989 as a look, although it kind of looks like anime drawn by someone who hasn't watched a lot of anime. Well, clearly Chris Claremont has, or at least has read some American comics based on anime, because two new characters, Rico and Kay, who are these very anime-styled ladies in green military bikinis with guns the size of their entire bodies show up. These are traffic cops who stop Kitty's car right after she finds Captain Britain, who's been walking after losing his powers when he caught up to Jamie Braddock. So these characters, they're going to be very familiar if you have a certain frame of reference. Specifically, these are the two protagonists of Dirty Pair. This is a Japanese series that started as, as light novels and then an anime and then movies and then more anime and is rare among such series in that there was actually an American comic developed before a manga. And that is one of the works that catapulted Adam Warren to a lot of visibility. He was the artist on the first several arcs and the writer and artist on others. Yeah, um, and actually, the company I work for, Dark Horse, published a whole lot of the American run of that comic. Does someone still send them Valentines every year? Okay, so it's really adorable. Every year, some reader, I, I don't know anything about this person, sends Valentines to the characters who make up the dirty pair. And it's actually very charming. Like, I don't think this person thinks they're real. I just think he really likes the characters and wants to send Valentine's gifts to their publisher. That is super charming. I actually love that. One of my favorite things there was when people would write letters to fictional characters. Right. It's awesome. But um, these two are the short version. What you need to know about them is there are two of them. One is the slightly more level headed one. They're wildly destructive. They leave just huge swaths of destruction in their wake, usually inadvertently. That's why they get the nickname the dirty pair. Their namesakes, they're in this world, their doppelgangers basically function on the same level. They're ridiculous. 
And so they demand, since they're traffic cops in this incarnation, that Captain Britain take off his helmet, and one of them jumps into the arms of the other when they see that it's Brian Braddock. And at the same time, Kitty jumps into Brian's arms, not being sure why she's doing so. Look, first of all, it's clear at this point that Excalibur is being manipulated by genre conventions not their own. Second, they're being manipulated by something else, too, but we're not going to find out what for a while yet. For now, take it as understood that people are acting out of character, and they are only now beginning to realize that. I just wish it was portrayed better by the writing and the art. This issue could have been so much more. Yeah, it is rough on a lot of levels, and again, I feel like they have lost so much by not going further with the Speed Racer stuff, because that, that's such a rich world, and there are so many components of it that you could have so much fun with in this story. But what we learn here is that apparently this world's Brian Braddock was the driver of the ORZ-1, who didn't see that coming, and was probably killed by his brother Jamie. Our dirty pair analogs have been trying to pin the murder on Jamie for years thus far with no success. Regardless, they go after him. Now where he is right now is a place called The Pit Stop. P-I-T-T-E-S-T-O-P-P-E. It's fancy, you know. He's there with Megan, who's still only semi-conscious. And Megan is shifting forms continually. At the same time, Rachel is doing that back on the train, and Jamie, in this world's Jamie, can also see the strings connecting people, realizes there are two consciousnesses in there, and reaches through Megan to try to pull Rachel out. And in fact, he starts coming through the mirror in the train. This whole Rachel-Megan link was always such a weird plot element to me, but this is a cool way to handle it, having a character who can manipulate reality using that link to manipulate it in a different way he wouldn't otherwise be able to. It's an interesting touch with the two of them, too, because they're characters who aren't particularly close otherwise, but this kind of forces them to establish a degree of empathy and proximity that they wouldn't really have an organic reason to otherwise. And he can't do this for very long, though, because suddenly the dirty pair shows up, they find him, and they quickly manage to, off-panel, basically blow up everything and get chased away by an angry mob. And completely fail to actually capture Jamie, because they are extremely inept cops. Kitty and Captain Britain do get here at this point, though, and confront Jamie, but he warps reality and makes Captain Britain beat up Megan without realizing it. He literally ties Kitty in knots and runs away with Lockheed and Widget as Kitty escapes and Captain Britain claws his way out of the wreckage of this fight along with the unconscious Megan vowing revenge on Jamie. This brings us to Excalibur number 19 and another new artist, this time the far preferable Rick Leonardi. He's still no Alan Davis, but no one's Alan Davis. And if you can't have Alan Davis, you might as well have Rick Leonardi. Well, and I kind of feel like if you ever need to fill an artist, Rick Leonardi is basically the definitive 80s X-Men fill-in artist. He is versatile. He's a very, very good draftsman in his own right. And he's really good at coming close enough to other people's styles to not make it look like a rough transition without just trying to copy them. And one of the first things he draws in a very different style than the artist of the last issue is the dirty pair arriving at the train, having, you know, been chased there by the angry mob. And they still look a little anime, but they look much more like, I don't know, human beings. You use a phrase I'm not sure I've ever seen before in this outline, which is sexily demanding sanctuary. They do. They demand sanctuary while being sexy and having little hearts go around their heads to, you know, convince the people to help them. I feel like this might be a Castle Sexy Dracula point of disambiguation. Do they sexually demand sanctuary or do they demand sexy sanctuary? Oh, they sexually demand sanctuary. That's okay. very clear. So the, the sanctuary itself doesn't have to be sexy. No, I mean, the train, Like, I guess if, if you like trains, is this a sexy train? What makes a train sexy? Well, in this case, what makes a train sexy is Nightcrawler and Alistair Stewart. Because Alistair is talking down to the mob as they hide the girls in the train. They're all making heart eyes at him. 
but they're very surprised when they suddenly see the demonic-looking Kurt. They freak out, and he surprise kisses them into submission, I guess? Don't do that, Kurt. That's not okay. Now, now, Fräuleins, let's not fight amongst ourselves. Two of you, two of us, where's the problem? Patriarchy, Kurt. The problem is patriarchy. I mean, I know in this world, like, everyone's supposed to be acting a little out of character, but come on, Kurt, you're supposed to skirt the line on the right side of creepy, and and you're not doing that right now. I think that's why evil Kurt Wagner's always feel like so much more of a betrayal than evil other people. I would agree, yeah. Like, he's the guy who's not that guy. And like, when you push him over that line, it just, it it just feels so wrong. Super icky, it's true. Now, speaking of icky places, the other characters are in this dimension's version of Madripoor. You know, that seedy Southeast Asian city that Wolverine hangs out in sometimes? Do you sort of imagine, based on the way it gets described in the comics, that like every surface in it is slightly tacky all the time? Everything's sticky in Madripoor. There's no question there. I want to see a travel poster. Madripoor. Everything's sticky. Oh, man. Right next to, like, Genosha's totally ironic brochures. Genosha is for lovers. Perfect. Okay, we need to open a Marvel Universe travel agency. It'll be great. We can be headquarters next to Damage Control. No one will ever want to go there. <laughs> no one will anywhere. ever want to go anywhere. I uh, want to go to the moon. I want to go to that one bar that Kitty was telling that story in from earlier. Oh, dude, that bar was awesome. We could totally go and drink with Fred Savage and his many eyes and teeth. We could. We could explain the X-Men to him. It would be great. I mean, Kitty already seems to have a pretty good handle on that. But... Well, she only explained a little. We can explain the rest. We can talk about the Summer's Family Tree. I feel like they might kill us. We might die in a bar fight in space. Dying in a bar fight in space. That's probably how we're going to go out. It's true. I mean, I really hope so. If you're going to go, that's the way to do it. But regardless, here in Madripoor, Jamie is being all creepy and evil, hunting Kitty with Lockheed and Widget in hand, and he's ambushed and beaten the hell down by Captain Britain. Even though this isn't the Jamie of 616, Captain Britain finally has an outlet for all of the frustration and all of the betrayal. Jamie is not only an antagonist, but he's Brian's fallen idol. He is the big brother he looked up to who turned out to have his fingers in just about every avenue of terrestrial evil he could. And Captain Britain voices that frustration. How could you? I wanted to, Bri, old boy. It gave me pleasure. And then he just flicks the air near Captain Britain's face and sends him literally through a building. I mean, who are you to judge, sport? You haven't always played the Paragon. Tried, curse you. Counts for something. And Brian falls all over unconscious. Kitty Pride shows up and attacks Jamie herself, and it really doesn't go well. She has to run the hell away. Fortunately, Widget is there and makes her a handy escape portal. She doesn't want to go through, but it's either that or get caught in a fiery inferno. And finally, she jumps through the portal and wakes up in what turns out to be Betsy Braddock, Brian's twin sister Psylocke's old bedroom at Braddock Manor. Yeah, and the narration mentions that it's a very feminine bedroom. Kitty finds herself in Chinese-style pajamas around, quote, oriental decor. I mean, on one hand, I totally believe that the Braddock's mansion would have been kitted out during, like, the peak of Victorian orientalism in Britain. On the other hand, we try not to use that word anymore, Kitty. It's super racist and definitely, like, a product of that very specific sort of Victorian jingoism. It's true, but one interesting thing story-wise, racism aside, is that around the same time in Uncanny X-Men, Psylocke, you know, had that whole body swap thing going on, you know, where she was put into a generically Asian body and it was all awkward and stuff. So this appears to be Chris Claremont attempting to have some sort of justification for why the Siege Perilous would have dropped her into a situation like that. You think? Because this is also consistent with, like, again the kinds of decor that would be in an ancestral upper-class British manner. Why not both? So many reasons. So many reasons. Now, Kitty heads downstairs. I mean, she faces downstairs when she's surprised and finds a woman that we haven't seen in a long time. This is the Braddock's maid and housekeeper, Emma. 
She's definitely dead. She totally died in Captain Britain Volume 2, number 14. It kind of reminds me of that one lady who worked on the bridge of the ship uh, in Space Mutiny, that great science fiction movie. That- oh, the one with the curly hair who got murdered and then was on the bridge in the next scene? Yeah, that movie had some problems, like the fact that it stole all of its space scenes and special effects from the 70s Battlestar Galactica. But what it lacked in quality, originality, and coherence, it totally made up for in Railing Hills. It totally did. And it's one of the best Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes ever. It really, really is. But regardless, Emma's all nice and friendly to her. And Kitty checks out the newspaper and realizes based on the news that's going on, she may very well be back on Earth 616. She may very well be back home. Now, back on the world where they were previously, Rachel wakes up in the back of the train. Her telepathy is on the fritz. The only person she can contact is Megan, thanks to their involuntary bond. And she's got a plan. Rachel is going to use her and Megan's powers in tandem to confuse Jamie by having Megan manifest the forms and powers of various X-Men. And she turns Megan remotely into Wolverine, still wearing Megan's outfit, to demonstrate. And I have an objection to this. Like, while I will agree that it would be confusing to have some lady turn into a bunch of different X-Men while she was fighting you, like, Jamie Braddock's never seen the X-Men. And Rachel Summers doesn't know the current version of the X-Men that Megan's turning into. Like, what's even happening? I mean, she knows the people who were on the team when the team died. They were on the news. I guess so, but I don't know. And maybe she's just using them because they're a convenient source for a set of superpowers. Like, they're the folks she's got the trading cards for in her back pocket. Oh, sort of like how Squirrel Girl has those supervillain trading cards from Deadpool? Exactly. And again, Rachel is confused. She's exhausted. She's ill. She's trying to put together this plan kind of on a shoestring. So she's going to go with what she's most familiar with right now. I guess that makes a certain degree of sense. And indeed, Megan does go after Jamie Braddock first in the form of Wolverine, and then Longshot, and then various other X-Men, and it doesn't really go very well until she turns to Havoc and blows a giant cartoony hole in the middle of Jamie Braddock. Meanwhile, back on Earth-616, Kitty stumbles upon Jamie in an upstairs bedroom. He looks the way he did when he was a prisoner of Dr. Crocodile. He's in, you know, a diaper or tiny undies. His hair is long and unkempt. He's wearing gold earrings. And he's playing with a set of Excalibur action figures with his back burned and smoking as if he's just been hit by a plasma blast. Back in this strange, you know, dirty parish race car world, Havoc's beam goes through Jamie and actually hits the moon, which explodes and makes all the stars fall out of the sky, which, as Jamie explains, means that Havoc has no cosmic energy left. This is how, in a story, you show how reality warping powers should work. You basically take the rules of the world and then you warp reality to have them work in really bizarre ways like this. Excalibur continues to fight futilely against Jamie. The dirty pair and company actually end up crashing the train into him. He's still alive, but he's starting to fade, not because of the train, but because in 616, Kitty has figured out an alternate approach. She shows up looking very maternal and angry and says, Young man, that is enough. Is this how you behave playing with toys till all hours of the night? It is well past your bedtime, Jamie Braddock. I want you undercovers, straight away. And indeed, acting like a child that would have been playing with action figures and not paying attention to the fact that his back was on fire, he gets up and goes to bed. And back in this other world where the rest of the team is, he just sort of fades away. Kitty tries to find her way back through Widget's portal, but there's nothing. It's broken. It's gone. It broke when the train crashed into Jamie on the other side. Which leaves her stranded in 616 with all of Excalibur, God knows where, and she does the only thing she can think of to do. She heads back to Brian's townhouse on the other side of London to cry herself to sleep. As the narration says, In all her life, she's never felt so lost or alone. 
And though she doesn't know it yet, she's never been more vulnerable. Because Courtney Ross, Captain Britain's ex-girlfriend, who, you know, was killed and replaced by the interdimensional warlord Satire 9, is creepily watching her sleep like Edward Cullen or Vanilla Ice in that one movie he was in. That ends the second chapter of the Cross-Time Caper, and with that, you've got questions. Firehawk32 asks on Tumblr, Hey, it's pretty gross that Wolverine regularly uses his claws to prepare food, right? Yes. Yeah, I can't really think of anything to follow that up with. Yes, it is gross. Yeah, even if his healing factor basically makes them self-sterilizing, it's still gross. I mean, they come out of his insides. That's not okay. Super gross. Ah. All right, um, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, can you explain the difference between Jim Jaspers and Jamie Braddock? Okay, so there is a little bit of confusion here, I'll freely admit. We have two, A, reality warping, B, Brits, named C, James, who are D, both involved with Captain Britain. But that's basically where the similarities stop. So Jim Jaspers, he was a character created by Alan Moore and Alan Davis in Alan Moore's pre-Captain Britain run. I think it was in the comic called The Daredevils. This character is a fascist politician who took over Earth-238, where Captain Britain was sent at the time, and started an anti-superhero campaign, hunting them all down and killing them using an android called the Fury. It was bad times. After that, his mutant reality-warping powers kicked in, and reality completely fell apart. This was called the Jaspers Warp. The Dimensional Development Court, which was a big interstellar, intergalactic, interdimensional organization, then destroyed all of Earth-238, the entire dimension, to stop the Jaspers Warp from spreading. James Jaspers next showed up in Earth-616 at the trial of Magneto. He was originally intended to be the antagonist behind the Fall of the Mutants chapter of Uncanny X-Men, but that never happened, and he's been popping up here and there ever since. Now, Jamie Braddock, that's the character who's in this story. He's Brian and Betsy's older brother, uh, a handsome and well-liked financial genius and race car driver, but he built up gambling debts over time and got into worse and worse stuff to pay them off, so robbery, murder, the slave trade. He was later captured by a dude named Dr. Crocodile in Africa and tortured, basically, as revenge for those crimes. During that time, he lost his mind and had his reality-warping powers kick in. We saw that happen pretty recently in Excalibur. Eventually, he was defeated by Megan and Psylocke, but he's showed up a fair bit since then, here and there, at one point resurrecting Psylocke, at one point joining the Captain Britain Corps. Jamie Jeffers is the host of the British History Podcast, and as far as we know, possesses no reality-warping powers of any sort so far. Well, until Dr. Crocodile tortures him. I mean, at that point, all bets are off. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those Patreon tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a number of fictional entities— I am turning it over today, I believe, to, ooh, someone's going to be happy. The mic is headed to Sexy Nightcrawler. Unglaublich. So many wonderful women whom I respect, but also appreciate in our world. And it would seem so many, many more in others. My greatest regret in Excalibur's travels is that one man, however charming, blue, and fuzzy, could never hope to romance them all. But such allies I have... Bardcrest, Sam Jones, and I are the Athos, Porthos, and Aramis of cross-time love. Come, my friends, the loveliest ladies in the multiverse, await. And next up is the angry Claremontian narrator. You were almost free, Larry. You had broken out of your prison, but little did you know that your strength would do nothing against one as powerful as John Warwick, who still controlled you, body and soul. And there you have it. 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, merch, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be blazing through a motley mix of fill-ins as Magma hangs out with Hercules, Archangel takes a swoop down memory lane, and Excalibur dabbles in This Is Spinal Tap reenactment. Mm-hmm.